Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we know that uh, in this world that we're going to have tribulation, but we thank you that you have overcome the world through defeating death, hell, and the grave, atoning for our sins on the cross, and rising from the dead to give us new life, give us eternal life. And Lord, we know that you've not promised us that uh, it's going to be easy and there's not going to be pain or difficulties, but we do thank you that uh, we have ultimate hope and we have ultimate victory and that you are working all things together for good, even in our present difficulties. So, Lord, I ask you to minister to each person who's here today. Lord, encourage them uh, where they're hurting. Lord, uh, God, where we need to repent, I pray that you give us the grace to do that. But, uh, Father, I just ask that you would work in, in each of us. And, God, just build our faith. Give people saving faith. God, enable us to trust you in the midst of just all the crazy things that are going on in our world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Have a seat, if you would. And um, once again, it's, it's good to see everybody. Uh, I know everybody wasn't here when I, when I said good morning before. And... Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we, we usually do at Mother's Day that, uh, you know, we weren't meeting then that we're going to do today is, uh, is baby dedications. And, uh, you know, next week we're really uh, kind of the plan is to do a lot of the things that we couldn't do while we were uh, just online. Like we're going to do communion next week. We have these prepackaged communion elements. So, you know, you don't have to come up here and get it and that kind of thing. We're going to honor our graduates uh, next week. Uh, kind of going to do that up big since that was different this year, and uh, just some, some things like that. But, uh, uh, you know, today we're going to give some parents the opportunity to, to dedicate their children to, to the Lord. And, um, you know, as, as we do baby dedications, uh, you know, obviously babies can't really dedicate themselves to anything, right? Uh, other than maybe crying or <laughs> some things along those lines. And so really this is a time uh, for uh, parents uh, to commit their children to the Lord, uh, to commit themselves, uh, you, know, to, you know, to taking the steps that they need to take uh, by the grace of God and with the support of their church family to, uh, you know, lead their kids in, in, in the right way. And, and of course, the Bible teaches us that we as parents are ultimately responsible to uh, the Lord for how we raise our children. Um, you know, I've heard parents before say, well, I raised my kids in, in, in church. Why'd they turn out this way? Which is not really a very biblical statement. Uh, I mean, we're here to support. We're here to encourage. We're here to teach. I'm thankful for the people in this church that have invested in our kids and mentored them and that kind of thing. And we can serve certainly, uh, you know, be a part of that. But ultimately, if, if, you're, if we're Christians, you know, it's our responsibility ultimately for teaching and training and modeling and, and, and loving our children. The Bible puts it this way in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And, uh, you know, it's an Old Testament passage, but it certainly applies today. Deuteronomy 6, starting in, in verse 1, says... Uh, Oh, sorry. Uh, it's not on the screen in the back. Uh, now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. 
that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Uh, therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And th- then notice, you know, it's individual, but notice how it kind of goes corporate here. It says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Uh, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Uh, You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the idea is kind of in in us first, and uh, then we pass it along uh, to our kids. So, uh, you know, normally kind of the way we do this is, um, you know, have the, the families come up and, uh, you know, if they want to share a verse, that kind of thing, ask them some commitment questions. And then we gather around and pray over them as a church family. We're not going to do that today, uh, at least the prayer part of it. Uh, you, you can pray from, from where you are, but uh, Rusty, you care to hand me that microphone. So, uh, Caitlin, how about you and uh, Ethan and, and Casey come up first? So, um, this is Ethan, Caitlin, Casey. Um, how old is she now? A little over two months. A little over two months. And uh, it, it, I don't, most of you, well, probably know them. Ethan has uh, grown up here at True Life. Uh, he is one of the 13 Baird kids. And <laughs> how many grandkids is this now, John? The 10th. I'm impressed. You know, he, he knew that just, just like that. Uh, you probably know all the grandkids, maybe not all the kids anymore, right? Is that, that how it works? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I think one, to me, one of the things that is a, uh, one of the greatest blessings as, as a pastor, and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of weddings at True Life, just the Bears have had a lot of <laughs> weddings, but, um, uh, you know, to see kids that have grown up in uh, your church and then to see them as adults continuing to walk with the Lord and then, you know, see it being transmitted to the next generation. Uh, one of the things I pray for that I hope we would all pray for is that God would give us a godly legacy for generations. And I think that's one of the things as Christians we should all uh, desire. And so, uh, you know, that, that blesses me as a, as a, as a pastor. Um, you know, it says something obviously about the families, but for those of you that have worked in kids' ministry and youth ministry over the years, you know, I hope you're encouraged by that uh, as well. Um, they're kind of quiet, so they, they didn't want to make a, a big speech or anything, but uh, uh, I, I just ask you guys a couple questions, and we'll have the other uh, couple come up, and then uh, we'll pray for you guys together. But uh, do you commit, uh, you know, before God to your church family uh, to raise your kids in church, but ultimately beyond that, to, to try to lead them to a saving relationship with, with Christ? 
And, and do you commit you know, before the Lord and uh, once again to your church family, you know, to take the steps that you need to take to, to grow in your faith and, and to set the right example and, and to lead uh, your family in the right way? Awesome. All right, so Matt, uh, you and Chelsea, why don't you come up? So this is uh, Aria, and Aria is what, about six months old now, is that right? Okay, and this is Matt and Chelsea, and Chelsea is Rob and Brenda's daughter, and uh, you claiming Zach today? <laughs> Zach's her brother, but uh, Chelsea grew up at True Life too, kind of been away for a while, and we're thankful that they have uh, come back, and uh, just ask you guys the same question. Well, wait, you, you had a verse you wanted to share, and then I'll ask you the, the, the questions. Um, Matthew nineteen fourteen. <laughs> yeah. um, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. All right, thank you. So I'll just ask you, you know, basically what I asked them, you know, do you commit to raise your children in church and ultimately to do what you can to lead them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And do you also commit to the Lord and uh, to the church to take the steps that you need to take to, to grow in your faith and to set the right example for your kids and to lead your family in a godly way? All right, well, how about let's stand together. And like I say, we're not going to come up here and surround them, unfortunately. But uh, how about let's all join together and uh, let, let's pray for them. Father, I thank you for these families. God, we thank you for the gift uh, of life. We know that uh, um, you're, you're the author of life. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, these beautiful little girls. And God, we pray that you bless them, that you take care of them. Lord, we commit them to you and pray that when they are old enough, that they would uh, enter into a relationship with you by your grace. And we pray that your hand would be upon them, that you would guide them and guard them to raise them up to follow you, to be women of God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help and empower their parents, Lord, to, to live for you by your spirit, to walk with you, to set the right example. Pray that you would make them who you want them to be and that their families would be established to be who you want them to be. And God, that you would use them in, uh, in just this process as you have uh, ordained parents, Lord, to be your hands and feet in raising children. And just pray that you would work through them, that your will would be done in their lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's give them a hand. All right, if you've got a Bible, let's go to the book of 1 Samuel. Shane, can I give this to you? And uh, we're going to continue the series that we've uh, been in for the last few weeks called Broken. And we've been looking at the idea of brokenness from some different angles in, the, in, in Scripture. Uh, we've talked about how we have to come to the end of ourselves to really uh, have a new beginning. We've talked about how God will break us in order to use us and make a difference. We talked about last week, like what to do when we have a broken heart. But today, uh, I want to talk about a broken family. And here's the, the, going to be kind of the, the main idea of the message. I want to teach you today how to break your family, how to ruin your family in four easy steps. 
Is that what everybody came to church to learn on Father's Day is uh, how I can mess my family up in, in four easy steps? Most of us are like, I don't need any help doing that, right? Um, so uh, start with this. Uh, there, there's um, on the NPR radio show, there's... Uh, something called The American Life. And uh, it focused on telling one time the, the story of a young woman named Sarah who kind of sharing her family's fall from grace. And she describes it as growing up in a privileged family, enormous house, expensive schools, country club membership, mom and dad both driving uh, Porsches, you know, dressed to the nines. Her dad was a lawyer and all these kind of things. So the family was outwardly highly successful, but there was this huge pressure uh, to keep up the family image. So they had all kinds of rules. Etiquette was really important. And then under the surface, she said her dad had this terrible temper. He could just be set off by uh, the, just the slightest offense. Like if, if he found that she had left a candy wrapper in the sofa, he might go nuts. Uh, that kind of thing. But then she said, quote, that glittering image came to a screeching halt one night in 1990. Sarah described the fateful day when her parents called a family meeting to tell the children that her father had done something very, very wrong and was going to have to pay. Much of their money, it turned out, had been embezzled from a trust fund of one of his disabled clients. Her father wept on the couch as he confessed his wrongdoing to his children and said, we're going to have to start over. We're going to rebuild our lives. Her father was disbarred from practicing law. They had to sell their beautiful home, had to sell their Porsches. All their family friends disowned them. Sarah's mother had to go back to work, changing sheets in a nursing home and serving as a janitor at their Baptist church. Their family was broken. Nobody planned that. Nobody intended for that to happen. It didn't happen in a day. Because the reality is, normally we don't build things in a day, and normally we don't break things in a day. We build things daily, and we break things daily. And that's what happened. Compromise over time ends up in destruction because actions have consequences. Well, we're going to look at a family today that ended up actually with even a worse faith. They were broken, but they actually ended up irretrievably broken. They were very religious. It's actually the family of the high priest, Eli, and his sons who were serving as priests as well. And so, really, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you have this story that's kind of intertwined with the story of Samuel, the, the godly priest, the godly leader that God was raising up. But I, I want to begin with the end, at, begin at the end, because there's a saying that I think we ought to live our lives by, and it's the saying, begin with the end in mind. Or it could also be said, whatever you want at the end, build in at the beginning. Because the reality is, whatever we intend, whatever our goals are, whatever our desires are, whatever we're building in from the beginning is actually what we're going to get at the end. And so, 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 10, it says, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled from his tent. 
There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle uh, line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting uh, on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When, he, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this t- tumult mean? And the man came, came quickly and told Eli, And Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of his gate, And his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. And now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of, uh, of her death, the women who stood by her said, Do not fear, you have borne a son. But she did not answer, for she did, uh, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, and this is what that means, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. So in a day, you have father, son, wife dying, leaving an orphan child. This family was broken, destroyed in a day. But they didn't get there in a day. They got there daily. How did they get there? What steps did they take that led to this brokenness? And I want to point out four steps that that we're going to see in this story leading up to this. And and hopefully we can learn from it and, and learn what we need to do to actually build a family that's going to be strong and stand and last and be what God wants it to be instead of one that's going to be broken and, and fall apart. So here's one way, a step that we can take to go about breaking our family, and that is have the outward appearance of religion instead of the inward reality of a relationship with Jesus. Once again, they were extremely religious. We're talking to high priest and priest, but look at what 1 Samuel 2.12 says here. And one of the things I want to point out to you, and I should have said this before, let me make this clear. Um, you know, one of the things that's different about this story is that we're talking a father, Sons, but this son was the one, at least one of them was about to become a father. But we're also talking about, in, in a sense, Eli had authority over them because he was the high priest and they were serving as priests under him. So even though they were grown, uh, they were still supposed to do what he said to do. Now, I understand that today in, in our world, things are a little different where you know kids move out. We're not responsible for the decisions of our uh, adult kids. I'm not saying if you're like 60 and your kid's 40 and they mess up, that that's on you. Uh, I'm just saying this applies in a way almost like they were kids because of the authority 
authority that he still had over them as adults. But notice what 1 Samuel 2.12 says. It says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And literally in the Hebrew, the first phrase there, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. It's literally saying the sons of Eli were sons of Belial which means they were worthless is literally what it means in the Hebrew. But if you read in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul used the word, the name Belial as a synonym for Satan. So uh, this is a pretty bleak picture of their spiritual condition. And, and, And so he says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. They were priests, but they did not know the Lord. Being a priest, being a pastor, uh, I have a friend, my best friend from seminary did not actually get saved until, he had, until after he had pastored a church. You can be religious, you can be baptized, you can be a church member, you can be whatever outwardly, but outward religious experience does not mean that we have a true heart relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to come to the place of repentance and trust and, and surrender where we are relying on Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation and uh, have a life-changing encounter with him. That's what actually brings about salvation. And the reality is, is that one of the most destructive things that we can do to our families, one of the most destructive things we can do to our children is the religious hypocrisy of proclaiming Jesus with our lips and then denying him with how we live our lives. And, and, you know, there's different ways we can do that. Uh, you know, some people den- proclaim, profess the gospel and deny the gospel because, you know, they, they live lives of kind of doing whatever they want to do. And then, you know, claiming grace is kind of the get out of jail free kind of card and acting like everything's okay with them and the Lord. Other people, though, it's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. That was the younger son. He, he needed to come to the father. But, you know, the older son actually needed a relationship with the father, too. He may have been the good boy, but he was religious and self-righteous and, and, and legalistic. He really represented the Pharisees. So, uh, you know, we can be outwardly religious and moral and all those things, but it still doesn't mean we genuinely, truly have an inward heart relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way that affects the kids, uh, research has shown this. And, and um, I mean, I, I've seen it over the years as a pastor, is research would say, and of course, you know, God's sovereign, God brings people to salvation ultimately. But we can make that easier or harder, I think. But uh, research shows that uh, kids who grow up in a home where both parents genuinely walk with the Lord are the most likely to follow him as adults. The second most likely group is kids who grow up in non-Christian homes. The third most likely group is kids who grow up in a home where one parent really lives out the gospel and one doesn't. The least likely people to grow up in church and walk with the Lord when they become adults is people, kids who grow up in homes where the parents profess to be Christians and neither one live it out. That's what research has shown. 
So uh, if we have the outward appearance of religion without the inward reality of a relationship with Jesus, there's a good chance that what we're doing functionally, whatever our desires are, is pushing our kids away from the Lord instead of leading them toward the Lord. Now, once again, they grow up, they have to make their own choices. You could have been the godliest person ever and your child turn away from the Lord. You could be the ungodliest person ever and by the grace of God, you know, there's, there's not, sometimes people, when they teach Christian parenting, I think they teach it like, you do this, you're automatically gonna get that. And the Bible does not teach that. But what's their influence? Okay, so that's one step they took on this road to breaking their family. Here's a, a second step that they took, and that is they compromised the word of God. Um, the, the sons did it in their actions. Levi did it, or I'm sorry, Eli did it by not exercising his authority over them and keeping them from doing what they were doing. Uh, let's read on from there. You know, verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. But then verse 13 says, the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take, it for, himself, take for himself all the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and uh, say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting the pre to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take it as much as your heart desires. He would then answer, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I would take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And that's a little hard to translate for us because we don't do that kind of thing uh, today. But basically, the, the gist of it was, um, number one, they weren't following the, the instructions of the law for priests. But number two, they were being selfish and greedy, and it was about themselves. They didn't care uh, about the Lord. Uh, they were like, they were in it for what they could get out of it. So they were compromising God's word. It, it would be something like, um, maybe a way to relate it to us today, and, and just... Uh, the elders of True Life do not handle the money, okay? We have no access to the bank accounts, have no bank cards, nothing like that. But let's say we did. Let, let, let's say I, in addition to being the teaching pastor, was also the treasurer of True Life Church. The, somewhat the equivalent of this would be uh, when the offerings come in every week, me going in there and, and taking uh, whatever I wanted out of it and then telling somebody else kind of to pay the bills out of what was, was left. I mean, that's not exactly what's going on here, but I think that's a way to relate it to us. It, it's greed. It's, it's kind of like uh, prefiguring the modern day televangelist, prosperity gospel preachers, people who are in it for themselves. And then in verse 20, it says, uh, kind of in between, it talks about Samuel, but verse 22, it says, now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of, of meeting. So basically they were committing sexual immorality as well. Uh, you know, right there at uh, the, the temple, they were compromising the word of God. And of course, Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the thing which I say. So the idea is, if we're going to compromise scripture and we're going to live in sin, we should not expect things to go well with us and our families long term. 
That's what he's saying here. Number three, just kind of moving on for, for time's sake. Verse 30. Um, you know, well, let, let's actually, let, let's look, let's start in verse 25. Um, it says, if, if, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed their voice of, the fa- of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And what that means is, you know, there comes a place, and I think this is important for what, uh, you know, we hear, uh, what, we, what we read in chapter 4, that God says is enough is enough. But that doesn't literally mean that, you know, God like ordained all this and God, you know, wanted to kill them. It just means there comes a place where God uh, turns us over to our sin. That there can come a time when God says enough is enough. He he says, I'm not putting up with this anymore. Listen, I, I know God is gracious, but scripture never teaches that grace is an excuse for sin. And if God is dealing with you about something in your personal life or in your family, if there's something you're trying to hide, remember, Scripture says, be sure that your sins will find you out. It's going to come out at some point. So don't assume, you know, I can make this right later, or don't assume God's gracious, uh, you know, he's uh, just looking over this, or don't assume, I don't know who said this, but somebody said, don't confuse God's patience with God's permission, There is a day of reckoning. And it says in verse 26, the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and men. You know, once once again, this, you know, we don't have time to, I'd encourage you to read these first five or six chapters of Samuel to get the whole, first Samuel to get the whole story. But, um, you know, it's like I said, it's godly Samuel that God is raising up, intertwined with this story of uh, Eli's family falling apart. But then in verse 27, it says, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, God sent somebody to speak to the high priest. And you know, God sometimes sends people to speak truth into our lives. It could be personal, somebody one-on-one. It could be through a message. It could be however. Are we listening? Man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all uh, the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Notice what he says. Why do you kick at my sacrifice? It's pretty strong language of my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place. And honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Notice Eli's included here. It wasn't just the sons. He says, therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And so the the third step on the way to breaking our family is putting our kids ahead of God and honoring them instead of or more than him. You see, for things to work right, if you're a Christian, 
Jesus is Lord, he really has to come first. And it is not so much that it's like, you know, sometimes we hear these things like, uh, you know, Jesus, then your wife, then your kids, and your work, all these kind of things. Uh, you know, I've taught this before, even when we're in the marriage series in Ephesians. God doesn't have competing priorities. Anything God commands us to do is a priority. And so if we're going to honor Jesus, it means loving our wives. It means leading our children, so on and so forth. Those things go together. They're not like in descending order. But if Jesus isn't first and he's not at the center of things, the other things aren't going to be right either. And if, if we put our kids ahead of him, there's like a play on words in Hebrew here. To honor means to give weight to. And to lightly esteem would be the opposite of that. So are we treating God with weight? Is he the heaviest thing, so to speak, in our lives? Or are other things bigger and weightier to us than him? Now, listen, parenting's important. Parenting is a command of God. And, you know, a verse that was kind of always one of our key guide verses is, you know, uh, of course, we only have one in the home now, and uh, she's more grown up than us. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, this has kind of, you know, guided us as, uh, you know, they were growing up. But Luke 2.52 talks about how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And, and we kind of always use that as a guideline for parenting, you know, wisdom, intellectual growth, growth and wisdom, you know, favor with God, spiritual growth, favor with man, social growth, stature, uh, you know, physical growth. And, and, you know, all these kind of things are, are important. But what I see a lot of times is parents kind of fixate on one of those. And, and particularly, you know, it may be sports. In some families, they may say they're Christians, but their functional God is travel ball or whatever kind of sports. In some families, their functional God is getting a college scholarship, you know, getting the best possible job. Or it may be like the family we read about, uh, you know, your social status and how you look to people on the outside. And so if, if our goal in life is those things, or if, if our goal in life is, you know, giving everything to our kids, or our kids having everything they want, or our kids achieving uh, certain things, and we compromise their spiritual development in the process, we're in a sense doing what Eli did here. And so... You know, it's easy to say, you know, God first and those kind of things. But that's whether or not that's true is really revealed in our daily priorities, in our weekly priorities. You know, do we ever teach our kids the word of God at home? Is being a church, is that a coin flip? Is that if we don't have anything better to do? Uh, or is this like a priority in, in our lives? Uh, those kind of things. Fourth, when we indulge our children instead of restraining our children, we're setting them up for the discipline of God. 
Just to go over to, to, to chapter three, and in chapter three is the famous Sunday school story about when God spoke to, to Samuel for the first time, and uh, he thinks it's Eli talking to him, and Eli finally explains to him uh, you know, what he needs to do. Verse 10 says, the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. That's what Eli told him to say. And it says, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel. At both which, uh, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I'll perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity uh, which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Now, we're gonna take this and apply it to us today. But in, in reality... At a minimum, Eli should have removed his sons as priest. And in actuality, if they were committing sexual immorality at the temple, he should have had them stoned. Now, he gave them a little lecture, but words don't really mean a whole lot unless they're backed up. So think about this with kids. You know, it, really, if we tell our kids stuff, but there's no consequences when they don't do what we say, you know what they're going to do? They're going to tune their words out. And that's why the Bible says in Proverbs 19, 18, chasten, which means literally disciplined by both instruction and chastisement, your son, while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. You see, this is a theological issue. The need for children, the need for all of us to have discipline and accountability and be under authority is bound up within our sin nature, according to Psalm 51. Proverbs 22, 15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. David Castle has said that discipline is a reminder that we are sinful by nature. One of my favorite parenting quotes, somebody named P.D. James has said, if from infancy you treat your children as gods, they are liable to act as devils. And it's true. And so Eli indulged them instead of restraining them. Listen, I think a lot of times, uh, both within families and just our society today in general, Kids are not the problem, adults are the problem. Listen, if we let kids do whatever they want to do, what are they going to do? They're going to do whatever they want to do. And at a certain point, apart from God's intervention to change their hearts, it's almost too late because stuff gets ingrained. And so if we want to break our families, have the outward appearance of religion without that true inward relationship. Honor our kids uh, instead of the Lord. Compromise God's word. Indulge them instead of restraining them. Now, say, okay, I've messed this up to some degree. And here's the reality. All of us have messed this up to some degree, right? There's no perfect parents. 
And uh, Eugene, and there's no perfect parents, no perfect families in the Bible. Eugene Peterson's put it this way. He said, Adam and Eve are no sooner out of the garden than their children get in a fight. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are forced to devise a strategy to hide their father's drunken shame. Jacob and Esau are bitter rivals and sow seeds of discord that bear centuries of bitter harvest. Joseph and his brothers bring uh, uh, changes on the theme of sibling, themes of sibling rivalry and parental bu bungling. Uh, Jesse's sons, brave and loyal in service of their country, are capricious and cruel to their youngest brother. David is unfortunate in both wives and children. He's a man after God's own heart and Israel's greatest king, but he cannot manage his own household. Even in the family of Jesus, where we might expect something different, there's exposition of the same theme. The picture in Mark chapter 3 strikes us as typical rather than exceptional. Jesus is active, healing the sick, comforting the distressed, and fulfilling his calling as Messiah, while his mother and brothers are outside trying to get him to come home, quite sure that he is crazy. I mean, you read Jesus' genealogies, it's a pretty checkered line. Um, Jesus' family criticizes and does not appreciate. It misunderstands and does not comprehend. The biblical material consistently portrays the family not as a Norman Rockwell group beaming in gratitude around a Thanksgiving turkey, but as a series of broken relationships in need of redemption. And that's true of all of us individually, and that's true of every family. We need God's redeeming grace. And you see, I don't want to preach this in like some kind of moralistic kind of way, like do this and don't do that, because that's not the point of the Bible. That's not the point of this text. All of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, including uh, this text. If we could go back uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 2 for just a minute, and uh, I want to read three other verses that I think is what connects this whole thing together, because the real ultimate point of this is the only way to ultimately build a life or a family that really lasts is by the grace of Jesus and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Notice what he said in 1 Samuel 2.34. He says, now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. It's, it's what I said before. God came to a place. He said, my patience is exhausted. You're not dealing with their sin. I am going to deal with their sin. But notice what else he says. He says, then I will raise up for my a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And uh, this was speaking of some human priests, yes, that we don't have the time necessarily to get into, but ultimately this is speaking to the ultimate high priest, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is now our faithful uh, priest. He is the sinless one who came and atoned for our sins. He is our great high priest who brings us to the throne of God where there's forgiveness and grace and mercy to help in uh, the time of need. And he is the one who can forgive us as individuals. He is the one who can transform our lives. And he is the one who can enable and empower us then by his grace and through the transforming power of his Holy Spirit to build the kind of families that he wants us to have. Listen, we're gonna mess 
mess it up, but he redeems, he transforms, he makes new. He's the one who changes us from the inside out individually. He's the one who can change families, heal families, restore families, transform families, because he is our ultimate high priest. He is the one to look to. And that's why Psalm 127.1 says that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in, in, in vain. You want to build a house that'll last? Do it by the grace of Jesus, under the lordship of Jesus. You want to break your house, break your family? Try doing it on your own because all of us are sinful and all of us mess it up. To finish the story that I began with, <clears throat> Sarah went on to say, yet in the midst of this death, of security, of wealth, of achievement, identity, a beautiful new way of life was born. My dad instantly became better. He was happy. He wasn't such a jerk all the time. And mom, her transformation was amazing. She packed bag lunches for some homeless people who lived under a bridge. She went to Rwanda during the genocide. And she even let a homeless guy named Earl live with us once. God specializes in fixing broken things. God is more than capable of giving us the grace not to break our families and to restore broken families. But it's through the work of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the starting place is to make sure that we have a relationship with Jesus and are living that out, walking it out. Not just being religious, but that Jesus is truly the Lord of our lives, that we're trusting him, that we're surrendered to him, that we're following him. And so you could be single, you could be married, you have a ton of kids, whatever. First question is, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Or is it just religion? Is it outward or is it in your heart? Second thing I would say is when we blow it as parents, and we do, repent to God and to our children. I've certainly apologized to my kids for many things over the years. I mean, that's one of the wisest things I think we can do. Are we modeling godly living in front of our kids? What are the priorities for our family? Are we giving God our first fruits? Or are we giving God our leftovers? They see that. That's going to communicate to them more than anything they hear in church. Are we disciplining our children wisely and consistently? Are we teaching them God's word at home and making church participation together a priority? And listen, we've given you a great tool that I, to help you teach your kids at home right now media. I would encourage you, if you've not downloaded that and taken advantage of that, to do that. There's some awesome stuff on there that if you're like, I don't know how to teach my kids, this will help you to do it. Um, serve together. I think in our kids, that's one of the most impactful things, you know, going on mission trips together, you know, working, serving together in ways in, in, in the church. Uh, it's not just hearing, it, it, it's doing. So if you would, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.